Hi, everyone. We have a very special announcement to share with you. So as you know, we started Carrying Wayward almost a year ago, and thanks to all of our listeners and supporters, we've actually recorded over 40 episodes, a few minisodes, and also a couple of special events. We know some of you have been asking for more content, like longer episodes, more interaction, more events, and yes, bingo cards. Don't worry, we haven't forgotten. They are (laughs) in the pipeline. (laughs) Yep, and guess what, Wayward Friends? We've decided to start a Patreon. So our weekly episodes will remain free, but if you're interested in some extra content and perks, you should have a look at our Patreon tiers. Yep, our tiers start at just $3 a month, Choose the one that fits you best. We're offering perks like exclusive access to a Discord server where you can chat with Mary and I daily, post-show content, free access to monthly live events, and some producer-level shout-outs right in the podcast. The support of our patrons will actually allow us to pay for our existing expenses, like the rights for our intro music, our Google Drive, but also things like upgrading some of our recording equipment and also investing in making some merch because we have lots of fun merch ideas. Oh, we do. So go check it out. Patreon.com slash Carrying Wayward. The link is available on all of our social media channels. Don't hesitate to reach out to Mary or I if you have any questions. All right, Drew, we've got work to do. Yes, we do. Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 2, Episode 17, Heart. Let's get this show on the road. Hi, everyone. Due to the nature of this episode, we will be discussing domestic violence throughout. And during the voicemail, we do bring up the subject of suicide. If that's not something you're in the headspace to listen to, you can feel free to skip this episode or come back to it when you're feeling better. But more importantly, take care of yourselves. Thank you. Okay, this episode kind of surprised me. Really? How so? I did not think our introduction to werewolves would have me on such a bizarre emotional roller coaster throughout all of the episode. You know, this is one of those episodes that just like hits you right in the feels. Shall I recap it for everyone? I'll count you down. Three, two, one, go. We open on a bunch of women hanging out at a bar. Drunk coworker slash boss tries to get a ride home. Slyly, she ends up calling him a taxi. Creepy ex shows up, you know, just Women in bars being made uncomfortable by men. That's what men do, apparently. Next day, work finds boss mutilated, dead, heart missing. Uh, The brothers are clearly, they know what's going on. It's obviously a werewolf. They're like ready. Dean is like a little too excited. It's kind of adorable. They start protecting the girl because they think she's the next target. And then, oh, no, surprise. She's the werewolf. And the target was actually the boyfriend they were, ex-boyfriend they were hunting. They try to save her by killing the werewolf who bit her. Turns out that doesn't work. We only find out after Sam, you know, gets busy. The episode takes a turn when Sam has to put her down. And it's incredibly emotional and heartbreaking. And I wanted to die a little on the inside. Time? Jeez, that episode. I know that I had mentioned that it was like if we were in a string of really good episodes. Episodes. I didn't tell you anything about this one. Okay, so peek behind the curtain for our listeners. Sometimes life gets busy 
and I need to watch these episodes at work on my lunch breaks. I'm given ample time. It's not an issue. I'm really glad no one was around while I was watching this one for some obvious reasons. I don't usually look at the time in an episode, but I was looking at the time because I had to get back to work eventually. And it didn't even hit me how much of the episode was left when the kind of twist ending shows up. Oh no, did you get your heart broken? Did you cry? If I weren't in the office and had to go back to work, I'm 90% sure I would have. And when we get to critical time, I will quickly bring up a fact I learned about this episode that makes it even harder to like handle. Oh, you read that fact too. Oh my <laughs> god. We'll save it for critical time, but we'll get there. But for the long game, any uh, things to keep in mind? This is our first instance of rock, paper, scissors with the boys. So a little bit of levity there. That was a fun moment. We're also introduced to werewolves, you know, very obviously. And the brothers also discuss a possible cure for lycanthropy, which is kind of important because it shows up in a much later episode. Before we move into story time, I just want to get a few questions on the table. Okay. Is this very much like the lore for werewolves moving forward. Like you kind of hinted the, the a cure may be a thing down the road, but like as far as the wolves not really being wolves and just being teeth and claws and eyes. Visually, the werewolves are going to look similar to what we've seen in this episode. The eyes change a little bit, but the teeth, claws, a little bit of extra hair. Here they couldn't add extra hair because she's a woman, obviously, and hairy women are disgusting, probably, according to whoever made these decisions. The visual stays the same. The lore itself does change. In this episode, as you saw, the werewolves don't remember actually attacking and, and turning, but we do find out in later episodes that there are other kinds of werewolves. My last question is do we ever kind of get an answer as to why she didn't turn that one night i mean the only answer is that she didn't fall asleep is that really a thing werewolves have to be asleep to turn like the lore does change a little bit let's just say that i wouldn't pay too much attention to the lore that's been presented to you today i'm, I'm happy to hear because i will admit for as much as this episode like scores points i did not love our representation of werewolves in this one. And I, I'm looking forward to getting to meet more werewolves down the line and hopefully have them better solidify their lore. Shall we move on to story time? Let's jump in. Can we start by talking about how excited Dean is to be hunting a werewolf? For two hunters who are just so used to dealing with like mystery and intrigue and solving, to be given like just an easy win... Like, I mean, obviously we learn later on that it's not as easy as they once thought it was, and we see that in a few different ways. But the fact that it's like, we know what it is, we know it's evil, we know how to stop it, bada bing, bada boom, Bob's your uncle. I can definitely see the excitement, especially like we are deep into season two and we've never really seen werewolves, right? So like this is exciting for Dean, and I think... It's meant also to convey a sense of excitement to us, but I really did not see it as a good thing. <laughs> really? When you stop to think about it for a second, like, it's really sad because Dean is talking about it as if he's talking about, like, I don't know, seeing, like, a dog down the street or, like, something a bit more special, I guess, like a, I don't know, like a dolphin or a bear or, I don't know. And I just, to me, it's another reminder that their childhood was so completely outside of anything that we can call normal. It's basically like John Winchester's A-plus parenting right at work. It's kind of like a Russian nesting doll. Like the first layer is the clearly this is a problem. Like this does stem from the fact that they were raised the way they were and the way that they 
Like, no one should think killing a thing is a good and fun thing. But then, like, the layer below that is the, well, we already have to do this to help save the world to protect people. At least it's an easy one. It's it's an in, it's an out, there's no questions, it's simple. You're, you're, ultimately, you're right. It, it is, it's not something that we should be happy with, but in the world that they're kind of stuck living in due to so many factors, I can understand why it's kind of like an easy one. Something that he was also very stoked about, or that he said, like he was explaining why he was excited. He says that like the werewolf is basically like, and I quote, human by day, freak animal killing machine by moonlight, obviously. I was like, hmm, I wonder why he would be able to relate to someone living a double life, seeming normal, quote unquote, by day, but becoming again, quote unquote, freak at night. Oof, as, as we continue that that kind of like through line of the series of like monsters being code for, you know, the LGBTQ people with different like, people who are different. This just adds like an easy, like a very easy layer to it. If we move on a little bit, like when the brothers are first talking to Madison, she's talking about her boss, Nate Mulligan. And she says that he was very nice, but that once you got a few scotches in him, he'd hit on anyone in a five mile radius. Let's put a pin in the fact that this was her boss and that hitting on your subordinates is never great. Let's just look again at the wording here. She said, anyone, not every girl, not every woman, everyone. And then there's a very like heavy look from Sam to Dean where Dean is just like smiling and, you know, kind of, kind of bumbling, I guess. And Sam is like, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, actually. <laughs> it's a great point, but I feel like I should really specify. Dean is just staring at her chest. Well, I mean, he's being Nate Mulligan. Because, like, again, hitting on your subordinates, not cool. <laughs> but it is interesting that she uses the word anyone, and then we have Dean filling literally his shoes in that moment. It's nice and subtle. Like, I did not pick it up right away, but it's really well done. This actually happens a little bit later on, and we're going to talk about that because I, I have a bit of a, a deep, a deep read about something. I feel like so far we've talked about, like, super happy things, just, I guess, because we're both in <laughs> denial of what happens at the end, but whatever. Well, this episode sets you up with all these, like, positive moments only to, like, make the ending that much harsher. I know, but you'll see who wrote it, and that's why. Ugh. <laughs> So let's talk about rock, paper, scissors. Like, tell me how you felt when you saw that. <laughs> it's just such a brotherly moment. It really is adorable. I'm choosing to believe the reference they make in that moment is a Simpsons reference. Because literally that is a joke in The Simpsons from way before this show aired, which is Bart and Lisa playing rock, paper, scissors and their internal monologues. And it's literally just Lisa going, oh, Bart always chooses the exact same thing, so it's easy to win. It literally, in that case, it's rock. But literally, like, the joke is you always pick the same thing, and then he clearly does. So the fact that Dean does it here literally twice, oh, it killed me. I was, oh. Oh, my God. Do you see parallels between Bart and Lisa and, like, Dean and Sam? The troublemaker always looking for attention, loud, a little obnoxious, and the really smart one who's kind of reserved and misunderstood. All right. Interesting. Okay, Just, cool. just saying. <laughs> no, there you go. I mean, I know a little bit, of, obviously, about The Simpsons, but that's really like a cultural landmark that I've missed entirely because my parents were not into it and never watched it. And so, like, 
I didn't watch it growing up. And so watching it now, I'm like, okay, like I get it, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't hit home the way that it would for somebody who's grown up with it, I think. I just want to like dig into a little something here because like, again, like you said, it's very brotherly and it's so nice to kind of see them be siblings for a change, right? Like it's kind of nice. And also the whole conversation that leads up to it, like... Dean wants to stay with the hot girl. Let's call her Madison. Let's call her by her name. And and Sam, who's like barely shown any interest in anyone, is actually super stoked to hang out with Madison. Well, and I think he brings it up later, but he mentions that she has like these like books around her home that she seems very like he's basically read more about her in the way she surrounds herself and the way she upholds herself. Like he has fully connected with the idea of her as like an entity and not as a physical being. I know we kind of touched on it the last time Sam had any kind of romantic inkling with anyone. He's so far removed from the superficial, it almost doesn't matter what they look like. I, I mean, he has conveniently kept keep the last few times he's ended up with anybody, they have been very attractive women. And I think that's just a rule of television, unfortunately. It's very much come down to their characteristics, their personality. Like, I mean, like, I know it sounds like a very on the nose way of describing like, oh, he cares about who they are and not just what they look like, but like to an nth degree. I completely agree, Drew, actually. And I hadn't thought about that, but the way that he actually connects with the environment that she's created around herself, you know, like she, he looks at, at her books, like you said, he looks around, like he, he finds out, like he knows about what she does, etc. So it's like, he's connected with all of the things that like, she has chosen regardless of her appearance. And I had not thought about that. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, because if we look at other times where there's been an instance of Sam either staying with the female lead in an episode or, you know, having the opportunity for romance, the only times it's really come up, I would say, are this episode and um, the one with the creepy painting. Providence. Pro Providence, yes, thank you. Yes. Even there. That. He falls for her because of their conversation, because of the, like, he's basically forced on the date. He does not want to go on the date because he doesn't know anything about her. Once he gets to know her and realizes, oh, you are not just a person, you are a personality, you are uh, an intellect, you are someone to know, that's when he can connect with them. And I, I kind of see this running with Sam is that he's not very superficial. Like it almost doesn't matter. He needs to have something to grab onto first that kind of like, like connects him to the person. And then he can kind of start to like learn and unravel for him. I guess like his sexual attraction to the people that he's interested in comes more from knowing about them than from their physical appearance. In in my mind, like from what we're seeing, like I definitely see Sam on the asexuality spectrum. Shortly after, we find out that Madison is the werewolf. I want to like ask you because I find that that scene is like really heavy. Like it's a tough one for me to watch, but how how did you feel during that scene where Sam ties Madison to the chair and like waves his gun at her? Okay, so to answer your question, I felt icky. It was like a really unsettling thing it didn't feel like sam i think the issue with it is kind of in a i don't want to go too much into the like, critical time but i think it's a writing issue more than a story issue in this case sam would believe her right away like sam would say to her like oh you attacked me and like you're a werewolf and like here's the evidence and she'd like be like oh you're crazy and he'd be like you really don't remember like he would he would come down to her level a lot quicker and be like wait we have to figure this out 
the like waving a gun around and being hysterical are a little too much. Do you think that he would have trusted her over Dean? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Dean is saying that she's the werewolf, and he she's saying that she's not. I don't think he would have tied her up. I think he would have tried to find more evidence and like tried to like fight Dean on it and get Dean to prove it. So that's interesting what you're saying, that you think that this was too much, because this is not a scene that I enjoy personally, because, it, you know, clearly she doesn't remember. She's like begging for her life, literally, and it's just a difficult moment. But I also got like pretty big Dwayne Tanner vibes at that moment when I was rewatching it. I also find it interesting that in this case, Sam is having to kill a woman. And again, in this episode, this is someone with who he has a romantic connection. And looking back, I find that it's an interesting juxtaposition because it leaves me questioning if anything was implied by having both brothers in a similar situation in the same season one with a woman and the other with a man. And we also know that Croatoan had a lot of Bidene subtext. So I'm wondering if this might be a nod to that. The scenes have so much parallel. I mean, even the way they kind of end differently too, like it says a lot about the two of them and their relationship. Well, do they end differently though? He doesn't kill, he doesn't kill, Dean doesn't kill Dwayne and Sam doesn't kill Madison in that scene itself, right? I meant more in the ultimate, like, the end results kind of thing. They even both end up being supernatural creatures, too. That's what I'm saying. I feel like there are a lot of parallels there that I find a little unsettling that kind of, again, like, seems to be adding another layer in the the queer coding of Dean. Like, these little things, like, I did... Not in a million years that I make that connection, and now that you put it on the table, it's just, it's so... Like, just such a juicy morsel. (laughs) Isn't it though? Oh I was rewatching it this week and it just like the moment where she's begging for her life, I just got like a flash of Dwayne Tanner and I was like, oh, oh my God. This is a really tough episode for Sam. Like he's just going through so much. You know, he tells he tells Dean that Madison reminds him of himself. And he tells him that like he'll kill her if she turns into a werewolf overnight. And that sort of like brings me back to Sam forcing Dean to promise him that he'll kill him if it comes down to it. And that was in Playthings. He's literally in a situation, Sam is literally in a situation where he has to kill his own surrogate acting out like what he had his own brother promise that he would do to him. Like, Sam... Like, he's forced not only to have empathy for himself, but also to have empathy for Dean, who is in that situation of, like, having to kill a loved one or, like, you know, potentially having to kill a loved one. And it's... Sam. The moment when it became obvious that's what it was going to turn into, like, when she asks finally at the end, oh, my, like, my notes were very, like, oh, the tables have turned, Sam, now you have to know what Dean has to go through. And then it, like... Came down a little and I was like, oh God, you have to go through what Dean has to go through potentially. I want to do something here because I thought that 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 it was really such an amazing observation. So I'm going to shout out our our friends over at On the Road with Supernatural. If you're not listening to their podcast, you are missing out. You should definitely be subscribing to their podcast. They brought up the fact or the the idea, I guess, like the theory or headcanon or whatever, that a lot of the lore that the boys are acting on comes from John and also turns out to be wrong. And that the reason why 
so much of their lore is wrong in the first few seasons is because of John. And like, I find that that's an, um, such an amazing in-universe way to explain why so much of the lore is different in the first few seasons. And this is just such a prime example of it. And so obviously like this is not my observation, so I absolutely have to cite them and say like, this is from their observations and their discussions. But like, I I love it. That the journal essentially is it's written from John's point of view, so it's written by the way John wants it to be. So when he believes there's something, it's not there's potential, it's the I believe this, try it. It's interesting because in later seasons they end up like referring to the journal a bit more in terms of narrative, like the narrative of John. So like when they want to find out where John was at this date, they'll go to the journal or like dad thought this, but they always back it up with other research. They never just rely on what John has said. So again, like excellent observation, I find. Okay, so let's move... Let's move to right after that, where, you know, they, they realize or they think that, you know, the line has been severed. I just want to say that I'm super thankful that Sam actually acknowledges the harm that he's done to Madison by tying her to the chair and threatening to shoot her. I really appreciated that. You know, he says that there's no way to go back to the way things were before he did that. In the real world, he would most certainly be right right? Like, how can you possibly trust him after he's done that to you, right? Like, I know I wouldn't, but this is fiction. So obviously they end up sleeping together just after. But I did appreciate the acknowledgement that the violence that he's actually enacted on her should really disqualify him from her ever trusting him again. I think even the fact that she prior to this brings up her, I, I like, you know, almost like that fear of, of like being how does she word it when she talks about being with her ex? The the fear of... Um, Something about being helpless, right? She now sees Sam as like a hero almost. And this is kind of like a reactionary sexing. But then, you know, as you know, she's not cured. And she's still a werewolf. And that scene always kills me. Because this is the first person that Sam has truly cared about uh, since Jess. And I'm talking about like romantically or sexually. He literally has to shoot her through the heart. And he's just trying so hard to find a way to save her. You know, like the way that he could not save Jess. Something about that, like the inevitability, it's like knowing there's no other way. It's how she accepts it and wants it to be him is just, oh, it's hard to watch. It's very painful to watch. It is painful to watch. It's a hard episode to watch. Oh my God. Like when, when I like, as we were winding down and I was having the realization of like, they're not going to save her, are they? I know, eh? Because like, it feels like, so far, especially like the first, these two seasons, like they've been so kind in the sense that like, yes, we've seen a lot of death, but we've, you know, a lot of people got away with it or a lot of people survived. But in this case, I think this was a signal to say like, no one is safe on this show because this is where it starts truly like <laughs> the literal massacre of all the characters. I mean, if I could just bring up like the last like frame of this episode, the fact that Dean, like the single tear is already like real, but the fact that he flinches at the sound of the gun, let's look at it from the fact that he has been around guns enough that even if he's not the one holding it, he doesn't flinch. He has never flinched. But when he is legitimately not expecting the gunshot 
and then it rings out. He didn't think Sam could do it. I want to hug them. <laughs> it's a heavy episode, and, like, I think it deserves, like, respect, I guess. I don't know. Like, it's just... It's a tough one. I generally skip it. I mean, understandably, understandably. But I'm glad that we've watched it and I'm glad that you've watched it. And uh, I'm glad that it's behind us now almost. <laughs> Shall we move to critical time and maybe try to recover a little bit emotionally? Let's try. In this lovely episode, who do we have to thank as our writer and director? The writer is Sarah Gamble and the director is Kim Manners. Just as a quick reminder, this season Sarah Gamble wrote Bloodlust, Crossroads Blues, and Houses of the Holy. And Kim Manners this season directed In My Time of Dying, Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things, No Exit, and Houses of the Holy. We're getting those episodes like Houses of the Holy that are that are heavy. Like, that was a heavy episode. This is another heavy episode. This is the beginning of the massacre of all of the characters, and Sarah Gamble will be one of those writers who will be heeding the charge of killing off so many of our beloved characters. I did want to pull up, like, a few... One fun fact and one less fun fact, I guess. The fun fact was I like the detective names they, they choose this episode are Landis and Dante, uh, who were the directors of Howling, a classic werewolf movie and an American werewolf in London, probably the best werewolf movie. So just kind of a cute feel like this is one of those times where you can kind of see Dean like crack a smile as he's doing this. Like he knows full well who he's referencing. Like it's one thing to make the reference, another thing to be like, I'm so proud of myself for thinking of this. He is so proud of himself and I loved that moment. But thank you for mentioning that because honestly I would not have put it together. I was like, why Landis and Dante? Yeah, I think every time I hear the names now I have to Google them. Yeah, that's true, eh? Now I guess I guess that should be part of our, our usual process. What was your other fact? The other fact is less fun. We mentioned it earlier in the episode uh, at the beginning, and that was to help make the scene more realistic emotionally at the end. The tears are completely real. For Jared, he was legitimately remembering like a terribly like heartbreaking memory of like putting down his dogs. The response, like his pure raw emotion was so strong that Jensen having to just see him bring up those memories made him cry. Like if there isn't a level of like, sweetness and brotherhood in like these actors and their relationship as actors that is it right there i didn't know that jensen was actually just crying in response to seeing jared like that that just makes it so sad i want to talk about something else too because we talked about dean being like very lighthearted, obviously except in that last scene in this episode and Again, I am going to refer to our friends over at On the Road with Supernatural. They made another observation that I thought was so good. And again, like this is one of those that fits so well for this episode. Because they mentioned that like whenever we have a Sam-centric episode, Dean is kind of written like a bumbling idiot. Isn't it true though? When you look at those Sam-centric episodes, like Dean is kind of just silly and a little insensitive and very dude bro and like he's not like that in Dean-centric episodes and like Sam doesn't change from Dean-centric episodes to Sam-centric episodes but it seems like there's truly a disconnect of like how to write Dean as a supporting character in the in in those episodes for that are Sam-centric and I just it's just so apparent in this one you know what it is like I think bumbling idiot's a great choice of words I will I will I will like, I want them, like, gold gilded letters, like, on my wall somewhere. Um, <laughs> but 
there it, it, it's the energy he gives off and i think this episode he became the most apparent dorky older brother energy <laughs> very much so but he was like that also in nightmare you know like where he's like eating the hot dogs and even like it's just and to a certain degree also tall tales where we saw like the difference between how they see each other it's particularly apparent in the first few seasons not so much later partly because most of the storylines go to Dean and not to Sam, you know, for better or, or worse. The last thing I guess I wanted to talk about uh, Critical Time before heading it over to you is Madison. Her character allows the writers to explore some like really deep and dark and real themes, particularly like gaining back control of your life after an abusive relationship or after a random act of violence, you know? Obviously, the depiction is not perfect, but I honestly didn't hate it. I mentioned earlier that I was really happy that Sam tells her that after what he did to her, he knows that, you know, she can never trust him again. And I thought that that was such a real and healthy thing to say. Of course, like I said, this is fiction and drama, so they sleep together anyway. But the one thing I really want to point out here is the idea that like the only way to be saved is through death. You know, when Maddie is begging Sam to kill her, she tells him that this is the only way he can save her. And again, like this is a theme that I really want to track throughout the series because for a show where the characters cheat and escape death so often, they sure lay it on thick that death is the ultimate solution to so many things. There's definitely a bit of like cosmic irony in that, that like death is this like final like gate to pass through and they just keep going like, nope. Death is the ultimate solution to everything. Like you will be cured of this if you die. Like you, uh, but obviously I have a lot of issues with that, but it's just so interesting that it shows up so early. Death is the ultimate ending and they're just not being allowed to end. I don't like it. <laughs> no, I don't either. <laughs> Did you have any lore for us about werewolves at all? I feel like another problem with the werewolf lore is it spans so many cultures and histories. I, we have evidence from the Middle Ages. We have, uh, you know, from antiquity as far back as like Rome and Greece. We have stories of like lycanthropy being like some cultures have changing into animals being a positive thing. And then some have it's been that's where it got corrupted and became the werewolves we know today. So it's a corruption of you know, indigenous people's beliefs. It's, there's just a very wide gamut. And I think I want to see where the show takes it more to be able to better critique it as we compare it to modern examples. I think if I will share one thing here, there are examples as far back as like the Middle Ages and a bit more of classic antiquity. There is evidence of laws being written in a way where like denotes the fact that like werewolves and people who can change shapes into other animals exist. I really like the idea of thinking like there's, the, the lore is just so a staple of community and a sort of staple of like a people that their system of law has to like, entangle with it but i love that because that means that to a certain degree like werewolves were like you said a part of the people they weren't separate from them like you know you think of like these stories of like demons and monsters and gods and it's like no one was writing like the town charter to include the like and if you're a wendigo your house has to be this big like here they were including things like if werewolf do the following. Like that was part of the system. Well, there's your fun little werewolf fact for the day. <laughs> <laughs> shall we see what our community has to share with us this week? Yes, we shall. This week we have a message from Naomi. 
Hey guys, I'm a bit late to the party. I just finished listening to Salvation and I have thoughts, which I'm going to share. So I'm just going to say it. This does get pretty dark and I'm so sorry, but I feel that I need to express my thoughts. So I'm going to do it. So I want to join in on the conversation around Dean's reaction to John's goodbye and Sam's thanks for everything little speech and why he had such a different reaction to both of them so when John says goodbye it's kind of an inevitable fact that John's going to leave like if we look at just what we know from the first season John is a very absent father he is impossible to get in contact with he only shows his face to the boys when he wants to show his face to the boys I mean Dean was on his deathbed and John didn't show up. Like, that's the kind of father John is. If we look into what's revealed in later seasons, I have things to say, but I'm not going to say them. It's just an inevitability that John's going to leave and Dean knows that. So for Dean to be very blasé about John's farewell kind of fits. And with Sam's thanks for everything speech... Personally, I think his reaction is very, very fitting. So this is where things get dark. I'm so sorry. I view Sam's little, hey man, thanks for everything speech as a random declaration of love masked with a very macho, I can't show my real feelings kind of vibe. And Anybody who has either lost someone um, from taking their own life or has been down that path before, they would know that one thing that people tend to do is a random declaration of love. And that's what I think this was. Not so much that Sam was going to go into that building and end his life, but more that Sam was more than okay with his life ending that day. Like he would do anything he could to kill the yellow-eyed demon, even if it meant that he died in the process. And so Dean's reaction to that is very, very fitting. He raised Sam. He was basically the parent to Sam ever since he was, I don't even know how old. Like Sam has always been parented by Dean. And so Dean's reaction to hearing that is what I can only imagine a parent's reaction to hearing that their child wants to end their life. You know, not so much the um, the aggressiveness that I'm sure parents would probably not show their child, but in terms of a brother-parent combination, if that makes sense. Um, and I mean... Anybody who has sat and cried through multiple episodes or seasons of Supernatural will know that mental health and trauma play a very big role in the boys and their lives. I could count off many times that these boys seemed to be okay with their lives ending. That is very concerning and they should see a therapist or more, I don't, it's, it's terrifying. 
So I think that's why Dean had such a reaction. He doesn't want to lose his brother that he raised, especially in such a in such a way that is really it it sucks. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um I really hope this made sense and um I love I love the podcast and you guys are awesome. Bye. Just going to pick out one little line from Naomi's um, voicemail and reiterate what they said. Everyone see a therapist. Yes. Everyone can benefit from therapy. These boys, more than most, but everyone can benefit from it. That is accurate. That's very true. Let's break the stigma. Let's all go to therapy. Oh, yeah. Some of my favorite conversations happen with a therapist. Like, it's heaven. To go back to Naomi's voicemail... Um, they were right in saying it's a bit of a dark topic, but it's true. I mean, I had that exact feeling watching that episode, and I think they put it into very, very good terms. I've said this about Sam a few times, and I'm even Dean a few times, is they kind of constantly feel like they're ready to give their life for the cause. What I've heard some people refer to as like passive suicide, where like you're not actively trying to end your life, but you're like, meh. Today's the day. (laughs) Yeah, like, I'm going to do this thing that'll probably get me killed, but it's not me doing it on purpose. Which I think just reiterates Naomi's point oh so well regarding the why the goodbye was so much more emotional, even though it wasn't necessarily a goodbye, but it very much felt like one. Naomi, thank you so much for your message. I have to say that I loved that you started your voicemail by saying, this is going to get dark. (laughs) It was kind of you to prepare us for this. (laughs) Unlike this episode. Unlike this episode, exactly. That really pulled the rug from under us. But I I agree with you, Drew. I think that, like, they were totally right in what they were saying. Like, they managed to kind of, like, elaborate on the points that we were kind of sort of trying to make and explained it really, really well. I, I fully agree with their point. Phenomenal. Thank you for the voicemail. Thank you for listening. And thank you for... Being a fan, it means a lot to us. It really does. (laughs) Truly, it does. Thank you for your message, Naomi. Shall we head on down to the crossroads? We shall. Would you like to get us started? Sure. I will wish for something very inconsequential. I didn't like when Maddie emptied out her underwear basket in front of Sam. Okay, we totally didn't go over that, which I think is fine, but like, oh, what a weird moment. Well, because it's not important to the story, because literally it could be removed and it wouldn't matter. It doesn't do anything for her character at all, except make her look very sexually aggressive, which puts Sam off because he, as we discussed, like he was interested in her books and she's there like showing him her underwear. Like, I don't know. I just thought that that was such a, like a strange moment, like such a disconnect in like how Sam would like to be connected with and how she was trying to connect with him. And like, I mean, that happens in real life, but I just like, again, this is fiction. Like, you know, give us something that's that feels a little nicer for Sam. Like, you know, she could have she could have done anything else to connect with him and show that she was interested in him. You know, like it just feels like that scene. They wanted one of two things out of it. They wanted or they wanted both. They wanted to show off that she is like comfortable with sex, like that. It's not something to be like, you know, pussyfooted around. And they wanted the Sam being uncomfortable bit, neither of which I think 
was necessary. And I feel like there's a million ways you could have written that like two second scene to either get him onto the couch or get him interested in watching the show on the couch with her. It could have just turned on the show and had him like peek over and have her like call him out. And then the next scene is him on the couch, like enthralled, like would have been great. She could have also just like turned the other chair, sat next to him and turned on the TV. Like you said, like there are so many other ways that this could have happened. And I just, again, like I have no problem with anyone owning their sexuality, but this just, I don't know, this felt off to me in that context. This felt very like male writer room needed a moment of like, let's do something super sexy to make Sam uncomfortable. Exactly. And it just doesn't fit with the rest of, you know, her, of the the way that she's written in the rest of the episode, right? Like, yes, she's written as like a very strong character. Like you said, it truly feels like this was done for the male gaze. What about you? Very inconsequential. Although now that I'm thinking about it, it probably could affect the writing heavily. I want my werewolves to look like werewolves. Okay, so you want like a full like Remus Lupin type uh, transformation. I want something between like, you look like a wolf and you look like a monster. I want something there. And I think from like the story perspective, it could have actually helped a bit especially with the other scene we discussed being very off, which was Sam's very like out of character threatening of her because we could have had a Dean. I saw the werewolf. It attacked me. I'm totally fine, but I totally nicked it right in the elbow so we can know what to look for and then have her wake up and Sam realize it and then have Sam confront Dean about, hey, she woke up. She has a cut on her elbow, just like you said. Is it possible she's the wolf? And then have it be more of like a conversation with the two of them and then maybe even have Dean be the one like threaten her with a gun, tie her up and like, be mean. I feel weird saying like I have an image in my mind of what a werewolf should look like and I expect my werewolves to like live up to that standard which is <laughs> something I would never say about any other person or living thing but werewolves should at least be wolf-like. Okay well I'm very sad to tell you that that will not change. That is how we see werewolves for most of the series. I'll, I'll accept it just for our listeners if I don't make it very clear every time which I know I will. I will be a little heartbroken every time we get a werewolf that isn't wolfy. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, well, I mean, this show is going to break your heart anyway, so <laughs> what's a little more? <laughs> oh, I can't wait to take the rest of this ride. <laughs> You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. This week, we'd like to thank Naomi for their voicemail. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. Make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We really love to grow our community. And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carryingwayward. And until next week, carry on our wayward friends. Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who are ready to... Who are ready to let go? Are you letting go? I quit. This is my moment. Oh, no! <laughs> oh my God, brain.